Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning. Everyone can hear me okay? All right. Well, for those that don't know me, Miles, and I am one of the elders here at Harvest. And uh, as always, whenever I get a chance uh, to teach, I'm excited uh, to bring God's Word to you today. Today we're going to be in Isaiah 61. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can start to make your way to Isaiah 61. And uh, while you're doing that, I'd like to start today's lesson talking about celebrations. As we all know... Celebrations play an important role in our life. From a cultural point of view, uh, they, help, uh, they help us pass traditions down. Uh, they help us strengthen community bonds. But from an individual or, or personal perspective, they also help us create our most cherished memories. This is certainly true for my wife Erin and I. Some of our favorite memories from the past 20 years come from celebrations. We have been blessed to host our fair share of celebrations, starting with our very first big host of a celebration, our wedding day, some years ago. Or maybe one more recent, this was our uh, Christmas block party from last year. We see the riggers on the instruments providing music for us. Aaron and I have also been invited to some really memorable and special celebrations as well, like this celebration of life for our friend's grandfather. Or this celebration that I think some of you might recognize. This is last year's Harvest Christmas Party. And then sometimes I've just stumbled upon celebrations. For example, this picture is a few years back. I was riding a motorbike uh, through Indonesia and just happened upon a wedding ceremony. And they thought it would be really funny if they invited me into their celebration and took pictures with me. And so I, now I have this picture in my phone forever. Now, all these celebrations, uh, they have a special place in my heart, but they're not my favorite celebration. My favorite celebration happened about 19 years ago. It was October 30th, 2004, and I was in my final year at university. And this is when my wife Erin and I traveled, got in a car, and drove 10 hours to participate in my favorite celebration, the Boston Red Sox World Series <laughs> Championship. Sorry, Lee. He's a Yankees fan, I think. <clears throat> now, you might be asking, what made this celebration so special? And I think the answer is all of the suffering that happened prior to the celebration. Let me explain. In 1919, was a long the Boston Red Sox had the world's best baseball player, the best baseball player in the history of the world, Babe Ruth, on their team. And they gave Babe Ruth away to their rival team, the Yankees. And they did it just for a pile of cash. And so baseball legend has it that the baseball gods were punishing the Red Sox. They called it the curse of the Bambino. And so for 86 years, no matter what the Red Sox did, they could never, ever win. In fact, it became something like our collective identity, all those who lived in Boston. We became known as a city of losers. 
Our team, no matter what, was destined to lose. But then, just like that, everything changed. After 86 years of losing, the 2004 Red Sox reversed the curse. <clears throat> and we won a championship. And overnight, the city of Boston was transformed. For those of you that live or come from America, you know that Boston is known for being a rude and aggressive city. But on this day, it was a city full of joy and generosity. I remember walking down the street and strangers were just high-fiving me left and right. Strangers would come up to me and give me hugs. They would offer to buy me drinks. They wanted to share their meals with me on this day. I saw grown men crying in the streets. I saw people dancing in the streets. For one day, the city of Boston, is this a problem here? Sorry. gentlemen, Pejman. <laughs> Always taking care of us. All right, that sounds better. So anyway, as I was saying, on that one day, all of the city of Boston came together to celebrate and to rejoice in our previous suffering. And what made that day so unique was that instead of the suffering being erased or forgotten, it became a part of our story on that day. In fact, it became the fuel for our suffering on that fateful day. I imagine this is a little bit what the, year, like what the year of Jubilee was like for the ancient people of Israel. The year of Jubilee was God's idea handed down to the Israelites in Leviticus 25. And according to God's instructions, the year of Jubilee was to occur every 50 years. And basically what happened was Israel was supposed to reset itself, was supposed to restore itself into God's original plan. And on that 50th year, all of the debt that was accrued in the previous 49 years was completely erased. All of the land that was purchased in the previous time was given back to the original owner. All the slaves were set free. It was a complete societal reset. Now imagine with me, if you will, what that first day of Jubilee must have felt like for all the losers in Israel. For all of those who had spent decades walking in shame, feeling the crushing burden of debt, imagine what it must have been like to have their identity completely restored overnight. In fact, I bet if we could hop in a time machine right now and we could travel back in time to one of those first year of Jubilee celebrations, I bet that we could tell who had suffered the most in the previous 49 years by who was celebrating the most on that first day of Jubilee, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> so the suffering, like the Red Sox parade, was not forgotten during that day of Jubilee. Rather, that this type of radical restoration invites the suffering to play an integral role in the celebration. Again, it becomes the very cause or fuel for joy. I think both of these celebrations, the Red Sox Parade and the Year of Jubilee, can help us understand our passage a bit better today. Consider the context of Isaiah 61. Isaiah's audience is a downtrodden Israel. They have defeated humiliation and defeat at the hands of the Babylonians, and they are returning back to Israel now to find their kingdom in ruins. 
I imagine that they are full of shame and doubt and suffering. And so what God is doing here is he's pointing them to a future glory, a new Jerusalem, a time when their suffering will also be the fuel for their own celebration. And it will be a celebration unlike anything the world has ever seen. I'd like to take this idea of celebration into our passage today and look at four points. If you're taking notes, there's your outline. First, we're going to look at the invitation to celebrate. Then we're going to explore what our role is during the celebration. Third, we're going to look at the eternal beauty of the celebration. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about the cost of the celebration. So let's get started. First, the invitation to celebrate. Now, most celebrations begin this way, right, with an invitation. And if you're like me, whenever you get an invitation, you get really excited, right? You get the card or the text, and you start to scan the document looking for the essential information that can get you to the celebration. You want to look for three things, right? Who is hosting the celebration? What's the purpose of the celebration? And also, when is it? Right? Those are the three things that'll get us to the celebration. Is it a celebration for our friend's birthday next weekend, or is it a wedding for our cousin in the summer? Right? We need to have that three pieces of information in order to get there. I'd like uh, for us to consider Isaiah uh, 61 verses 1 through 3, our, our invitation to celebrate. We're going to read these verses together in a second, and we're going to look for those three pieces of information. I have the verses here on the screen. I'll be reading from my Bible. Feel free to read along. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful head instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. All right, so let's take a look at our invitation and see what we can find here. First, who is inviting us? The answer is right there in verse 1. Now, there's no name, but there are a couple of clues. First, we know that the Spirit of God is upon them, and we all know that they are anointed. In other words, they are chosen by God. And so the who, it seems, is none other than the suffering servant that we've been reading about in our study in Isaiah. This is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, that will restore God's people to God and bring light to the nations. He is the one speaking here. He will be our host to the celebration. So then, what's the purpose of the celebration? Well, we see in these verses that this celebration is, like the year of Jubilee, a celebration of restoration. But it's much, much better than that. It's a special celebration of restoration, and I'd like to unpack a few ideas so that we can get a better understanding of the purpose of the restoration. So first, I want us to look at the invitation list. You can see it highlighted here in yellow. The people invited to our celebration are the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, 
those who are bound, and all who mourn. And th this is not your typical guest list to a celebration, and so it invites the question, why them? And I think if we look closer, we'll see that the people invited here not only represent the lower rungs of society, but more importantly, they represent our deepest needs of our heart. These are people who long for spiritual redemption. In that way, they're no different than us. The poor don't just lack things, they lack hope. The parted suggest even a deeper level of despair. These aren't people who just have their hearts bruised from a few bad things, but their, their hearts are literally broken and shattered from life's unfortunate circumstances. They need complete restoration. The captive belongs to someone or something else. Their, uh, their life is no longer their own. They lack power and freedom. They are slaves to sin or addiction or power or pornography. Their future is not their own. And those who are bound, also known as the prisoners, the people that exist in darkness. You see, the Hebrew word for prisoner had a strong connotation for darkness. It's why Isaiah 42 verse 6-7 says, I will give you a light for the nations to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. You see, prisoners in ancient uh, Israel, they, they lived in darkness, right? We didn't have big windows in the prison cells, so they spent their life in darkness. And that's like a lot of people here today. We have been forgotten by the world, and we feel separated from our Creator. And finally, all who mourn. This is anybody who's ever felt sadness or regret or grief in this world. Now, in this context, it is talking to the people of Israel, and they're mourning for their lost kingdom, their destroyed kingdom. But at the root of it all, what Israel is really mourning for, whether they recognize it or not, is sin. You see, sin is the cause of all mourning. I am convinced that all sadness in this world can be traced back to Eden. So if you looked at this list and you were initially sad that you weren't included, fear not, Harvest, you too can come to the celebration. If you've ever felt hopeless, defeated, captured alone, in darkness, a slave to your sin, or just downright sad about the ways of this world, all you have to do is recognize your need for restoration, and if you, you're invited. So what happens if you accept the invitation? You can see the answer to this in green on the screen right now. And you'll notice that God is meeting the specific needs of these people, and he's doing it in such a way that I think two things become evident. Number one, it's clearly God's doing. You see, the prisoner cannot set himself free out of the prison any more than someone with a broken heart can perform their own open heart surgery. Only God can do these things. And then the second thing that I want us to take note of here is that God is restoring the people back to their original and intended identity. I want to look specifically at verse 3 so you can see what I mean. If you have your Bibles, you can look along with me or you can look up at the screen. You see, the people are showing up to the celebration ready for a funeral. That's what's indicated in blue here. Notice the ashes on their forehead. This was typical in ancient Israel for anyone who was attending a funeral or who was in a period of mourning. They would put ash on their forehead. And so the people here are ready for a funeral. But now check out the pink. See what's happening. They're giving new clothes, a new identity, and not just any identity. 
The ashes on their forehead are being replaced with anointing oil. In other words, they are chosen by God. And their identities are being radically changed. Instead of their funeral clothes, notice in purple here, God is giving them a beautiful headdress. This is the the, the turban that the priests would wear. And he's given them also a garment of praise. Think of the priestly robes. And so they are entering the celebration ready for death and mourning, and they leave dressed and ready to serve God. This verse helps us understand the purpose of our celebration, the why. And the purpose is radical restoration. Finally, I don't want us to miss, and this might be one of the most important parts of the sermon, don't miss the connection to the year of Jubilee. Verse 2 says that the anointed one will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I have it highlighted down there because it is so important. And just about every commentary that you read, Christian or Jewish, they all agree that this reference here is a reference to the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25, the one I was talking about earlier. And so what's happening here is that the people of Israel were not following God's command. Most historians believe that either they never or very rarely actually did the year of Jubilee like God told them to. And so God has sent a suffering servant to do what Israel could never do. And this time, the implications are going to be far greater. It's not just 49 years of debt that will be reset for Israel. Now it is a lifetime of brokenness for the whole world. So, when is the celebration? This is the missing piece of the invitation, right? We know a Messiah is coming. We know that he's going to enter his kingdom into a time of restoration, unlike anything the world has ever seen. But when? To find our answer, and I think this is where it gets really exciting, we go back to our scripture reading from earlier in the service, The answer is actually found in Luke 4, verses 14 through 21. In fact, Luke 4 is the moment in which our celebration begins. Think about it. Jesus, the suffering servant, promised by Isaiah, he walks into his local temple and he reads the first two verses of Isaiah 61, the same verses that are on the screen right now. And then Luke 4 says, He took the scroll and he rolls it up. He gives it back to the attendant and Jesus sits down. And it says, all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the celebration began on that day 2,000 years ago. Now, a quick but important side note is what Jesus didn't say on that day. Jesus stops reading, actually, after that first line that's highlighted there. He never reads the second part of verse 2. He never actually says that he is there to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, that that day that would be fulfilled. Because that day, the day of vengeance, that's judgment day. And that will come. And it will mark the end of the celebration, but that day is not now. Now, on that day, Jesus is saying it's time for restoration. This is an age for Jubilee. So in conclusion, we have all the necessary information now to get to the celebration, right? We have the who, Jesus. 
We have the purpose, restoration, and now we have the when, from that day 2,000 years ago all the way up until today. So we're ready to go to the celebration. Who's coming with me? A few of you. All right. At the end, we'll all go. All right, so we're moving on to part two. Let's take a look at our role in the celebration. If, if you're going to join us in the celebration, you should probably be asking, what are we going to do there? Now, first, a quick story. <clears throat> One of the underrated joys of parenthood is planning a celebration with your children. At least if you're not a type A parent, then, then it's a joy. Because your kids bring a level of excitement planning process that parents just don't bring. However, if you have kids, you know something else. They, they don't really bring much else than that excitement, right? I remember one Easter when my daughters, who are here in the front, I remember when they were uh, about three and five years old, and they were painting Easter eggs, uh, getting ready for Easter. It was a couple days before Easter, and we had these little paint or dye tablets, uh, the little round things, and you would put them in a cup of water and stir it around, and that was the paint. And then the kids would paint the Easter eggs, which is a common American tradition. And my three-year-old daughter, she thought the paint tablet was candy. And so she takes it and she pops it in her mouth, and her mouth becomes bright, bright blue for the rest of the day. And she realizes it's not candy, and she starts crying, and there's a blue paint pouring down her face. Now, my wife and I, we could have and maybe should have stopped the celebration right there, but we didn't. We cleaned her up, and we let her keep painting. And we did it for two reasons. Number one, we were trying to teach our children how to celebrate. And number two, it was just because we loved them. We delighted in their work, even though it wasn't great. And trust me, it wasn't great. She was literally eating paint, right? But I imagine that this is how God feels about us. The next four verses remind us of God's desire to have his people involved in his celebration. And similar to my little girls on that Easter, the fact that he gives us any role at all is not a reflection of how awesome we are, but rather it's a reflection of his love for us. So how do we get involved? Let's have a look, starting now in verse 4. It says... They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. So I'd like to point out two roles that all of us can and should be playing during this time of Jubilee. Starting in verse 4, you can see our first role. We are called to be builders. It says they shall build up the ancient ruins, raise up former devastations, repair the cities. And I think there's at least two things that we can do to be builders in God's kingdom. And I'd like to quickly share each one. First, I think when it comes to building, we should be looking to restore. Like the party host Jesus, I think all of us should commit ourselves 
restoring the world as God intended it to be. This means that we should adopt his love for making old things new and wrong things right. And to do this, we can be seeking out injustice and oppression, hatred and bigotry, sin, the devastations of many generations. And in their place, we should look to build relationships and institutions that are founded on kingdom principles like love and mercy and justice and peace. We should look to constantly restore the brokenness in this world. The second way that we can be builders is a little bit more practical. You see, God is actually speaking to the Israelites here, and he's asking them to build his kingdom bigger. And so that's the second thing. We can build bigger. Because think about it. The people of Israel are returning back to Jerusalem, and there's a real practical problem that exists. There's not enough space for everyone to come back to. The city has been ruined, and so they need to build more houses, Isaiah is saying. We need to make it bigger so everyone can come. Similarly, God's kingdom is always looking to expand, and he's looking for builders. The parable of the banquet in Luke 14, I think, is the perfect illustration for this point. You guys should uh, know the parable of the banquet. If not, I'll, I'll do a brief overview of it. In this parable, there is a master, and he wants to have a celebration, right? Fits with our theme. And he says to his servant that he wants to invite your typical guest list, right? The A-listers, the, the famous people, the, the rich people, the landowners, the celebrities, the athletes, right? Everyone who's anyone, he, he wants to invite them. But what do they all do? They all make excuses for why they can't come. They're too busy to go to the master's celebration. And so he calls his servant back in, and he doesn't cancel the celebration. That's so important. Instead, he tells his servant, he says, go out into the night and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sounds a lot like our guest list today, right? And he's out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Harvest. We are the servant. Our job is to go out into the world and invite people to our master's celebration so that they may also experience the restoration that we know. In this way, we're not just making the broken world better, we're making God's kingdom bigger. And so that's how we should build. We should be committed to restoring and making his kingdom bigger. That's our first role. Our second role is most easily seen in verse 7 where it says, They shall rejoice in their lot and have everlasting joy. In other words, oh, excuse me. our second role is to rejoice or celebrate. You see in verse 5, when God's people are experiencing a reversal of fortune in these verses here. They're no longer the laughing stock of the ancient world. God's people are now being, being exalted over all the nations. They showed up to the celebration poor and brokenhearted, and now they're walking around looking like priests and ministers. It says right there in verse 6, the rejected have now been restored. In other words, it's the year of the Lord's favor, the age of jubilee, and God wants his people to start acting like it. This may seem obvious to celebrate during a celebration, but trust me, it's not. 
Our natural tendency, even though all of us are actually living during the age of Jubilee right now, it's still the age of Jubilee, and yet our natural tendency is to focus on what's wrong. We do it with ourselves, we do it with the news, we do it with our environment. We are always ignoring God's bigger picture and focusing on our lives. And while we mustn't ignore suffering, including our own suffering, we also cannot ignore God's call to rejoice. Martin Luther, in his Christmas sermon in 1522, he puts it this way. He says, but if you possess faith, your heart cannot do otherwise than laugh for joy in God and grow free and confident and courageous. For how can the heart remain sorrowful and dejected when it has no doubt of God's kindness to it? In other words, Martin Luther is trying to get us to understand where we sit in God's kingdom. He looks upon us in kindness. And what other choice do we have then to be filled with joy? Ironically, Martin Luther's photo is probably the saddest thing I found on the internet all month. So maybe he needs to practice what he preaches. I don't know. But anyway, God knows all about our tendency to focus on our own suffering, to turn inward, which is why during his time on earth, he spends so much of it trying to get his followers to celebrate. In fact, as I studied for this sermon, I, came, I became convinced that Jesus' life is framed with a celebratory joy, and I saw that he is constantly inviting all of us into this joy. When he's born, what do the shepherds do in Matthew 2.10? Christmas trivia? They rejoice. And when he's ready to die, what does he say to his followers in John 16, 22? He says, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy. And for the 30 years or so between his birth and his death, you can see it right here. Jesus is constantly reminding, teaching, urging, asking, suggesting, hoping, praying, and forcing his people to celebrate. Even his first miracle, turning water into wine, fits beautifully into this. Jesus, the Messiah, has come down from heaven to restore the world, to kick off the year of Jubilee, and he's inviting everyone to join in on the celebration. Now, to get us into the celebratory mood, it's important to note that Jesus never promises us a life without suffering, and he never tells people to toughen up or deal with it. And he certainly never tells us that if we just accumulate a bunch of things and live for ourselves, then we're going to find joy. Instead, what he does over and over again in these verses is he points us to the joy of our salvation, and he challenges us to see the bigger picture of his redemption plan. So we have been invited to the celebration, and we're required to do at least two things if we get there, build and celebrate. Moving on to our third point, the eternal beauty of the celebration, verses 8 and 11. Verse 8 starts, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, 
that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now, I've been comparing today's passage, Isaiah 61, to some other celebrations like the Red Sox Parade and the Year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25, but I'm afraid that the comparisons have to stop here. Because as awesome as these other celebrations were, they, like all celebrations, have a major problem, and that is that they're all going to end. And like most celebrations, they don't end well. The Red Sox parade lasted only a few days, and when it ended, littered with trash, 37 people were arrested and one person dead. Even the year of Jubilee had to end. And as the end of the year drew nearer and nearer, I imagine the celebratory mood getting lower and lower. Soon things would go back to how they always were. The poor would grow poor again, and sin would run rampant, and slavery would start again. And so if the first day of Jubilee was the happiest day for Israel's poor, was the last day their saddest? And this is kind of how all celebrations are, right? They leave us happy that we got to experience them, but sad that it had to end. But the celebration described in today's passage is different from all celebrations. And what makes it so different, so much better, is found at the end of verse 8. It says, And I will make an everlasting covenant. This is God speaking to his people. And this everlasting covenant, known today by us Christians as the new covenant, promises an eternal celebration. It's not a year of jubilee anymore. It's an eternity of jubilee. And the two metaphors, this is where I become the English teacher again, the two metaphors found in our final sections, I think, help paint a beautiful picture, help us understand the depth and the beauty of this celebration. So Harvest, it's about to get even better. The first metaphor, <clears throat> this is found in verse 10, is a wedding metaphor. <clears throat> and here, Isaiah is comparing the priestly clothes. Remember the clothes that were given to us in verse 3? He's comparing those to wedding clothes, something a bride and groom would wear. But why? Why the comparison? Well, for starters, both sets of clothes are identity markers. You see, if I were to show up to a party wearing jeans and a t-shirt, no one would really know who I am. I'm just another guy, and maybe some of you just another girl. But if I were to show up wearing a priestly robe, everyone would look at me and go, oh, look, there's a priest. Or if you were to show up wearing a wedding dress, everyone would know, oh, there's a bride. You see, when you wear these clothes, your identity is made obvious. But the wedding clothes... They take this whole thing a step further, and this is why the metaphor is so beautiful, because wedding clothes reveal something else. They reveal that you are not alone. 
You cannot be a bride unless you have a groom. So, whereas the priestly clothes that were given to us in verse 3, they restored us to righteousness, these new clothes that are being talked about in verse 10, the wedding clothes, restore us to relationship. You are now claimed by Jesus Christ, your groom. But it gets even better. The wedding clothes also suggest, you can see uh, point B here, they suggest eternity. Think about it. What do we often say in our wedding vows? Until death do us part. In other words, there's nothing in this life that can break our commitment to one another. But what happens when our groom has defeated death and lives for eternity? When Christ calls us his bride, he is making an eternal commitment to us. So, we walk into the celebration, poverty-stricken prisoners ready for death, and now we're walking out as a priest and a bride, forever wed to our Savior and clothed in eternal righteousness. The second metaphor, found in our final verse, compares God's restoration to that of a garden, which is the very symbol of life. You see, our God is the ultimate creator. He is the living water, John 4.14, and he is even the sun, Psalm 84.11. He not only delights in being broken things and fixing them, but he is the only God who can take things with no life, like a seed out of soil, and give them life and a purpose and fruit. So this final metaphor is a beautiful reminder as to the ultimate purpose of our celebration. It's to go from death to life. During this celebration of restoration, we are not just fixed and turned into better versions of ourselves. We are given new life by the creator of the universe. That's where you say amen. I'm glad you laughed because now things get serious because there's one final thing that we have to talk about in regards to our celebration. And it's the awkward thing that no one wants to talk about, and that's the cost. Someone has to pay for our celebration. Every celebration has a cost. The Red Sox celebration, in case you were wondering, 750,000 US dollars. The average wedding in the US, $29,000. If those are too expensive, I googled how much a three-hour birthday party in McDonald's is in Malaysia, 500 ringgit. So maybe we could do that sometime. <laughs> and what about the other end of the spectrum? What's the world's most expensive celebration? Pejman, do you know? No? All right. Well, according to Wikipedia, it was Iran's 2,500-year anniversary of the founding of the Persian Empire. This celebration was held in 1971, and it cost anywhere between 22 million to 120 million U.S. dollars. Wow. Much does an eternal celebration of complete restoration cost? Turns out a lot, even more than the Iranian celebration. And this is the problem. On the one hand, we have a loving God who wants to host a huge celebration and he wants to invite everyone. 
But on the other hand, we have a righteous God who cannot be around sinful people and a just God who cannot just let sin go unpunished. So then what's the solution? How can we reconcile these two truths? You can't simply forget sin and act like it didn't happen because then he wouldn't be righteous. And he can't simply pardon the sin without any penalty because then he would not be just. So he does the only thing that a perfect loving, a perfectly just, and a perfectly righteous God could do. He decides that all sin must be recognized and it must be penalized, and he decides that all people must be invited. So he sends himself to earth to take the punishment for our sin. In other words, the cost is himself. Harvest, I want us to go back to verse 3. If you have your Bibles even, take a look again at verse 3. I want you to see what's happening here. You see, this verse is very, very well about us. You see, all of us, we were all marching along in life wearing funeral clothes. In fact, the Bible tells us the moment we were born, we were born to die. All of us were wearing those funeral clothes. And then just by God's grace, someone invites us to this celebration. Someone tells us about this Savior named Jesus and says, he, he's having a celebration. I, I want you to know about him. Come, come see what he's doing. And so we, we follow and we show up to the celebration. But then we realize that we're not in celebration. We don't fit the dress code. We were dressed for death. But do you see that this was a celebration of life? And it could get really sad, but it doesn't because something amazing happens. Out of nowhere, someone hands us their clothes. And these are priestly clothes. These are perfectly clean and white clothes. And so we put them on. But whose clothes were they? Those were Jesus' clothes. And so the question is, well, what, what is he going to wear? He just gave us his clothes. What will he wear? And, and Harvest, this is the most beautiful, the most wonderful, and the most tragic part of our story. You see, Jesus takes our clothes, our funeral clothes that we had taken off and put on the floor. He picks those up, and he puts them on as his own. He exchanges identities with us. We go to the celebration dressed as Christ and he grow, goes to the cross, ready for death, dressed as us. And so we can now celebrate a new life because Jesus gave up his. We can now have a new identity because Jesus assumed our identity. And so if you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus' invitation, I invite you to do so today. There's a number of people in this church who would love to talk to you when the service is over. We would love to talk you through this. We would love to bring you to the doorstep of the celebration. And then all you have to do is admit that you're broken and exchange your identity, your funeral clothes, your filthy rags, as Paul calls them. You take those and you, you hand them in. This is perfect righteousness. And then you enter into the joy of the Lord forever. And for those of us who have already accepted the invitation, for, the, for those who call themselves Christ followers, well, 
You've been given a new life. You have a new identity. And it's in Jesus' name. And so the takeaway is this. Let's start acting like it. Let's build up his kingdom daily. Let's join our Savior in his restoration plan. Let's add to his numbers daily. Let's make it a point this week, today, to rejoice, to really actually rejoice, to rejoice even in your suffering and rejoice in the work that God has done and will continue to do. Harvest, let's celebrate.